0: chapter 3 of the steel hammer this is a libriVox recording all libriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the steel hammer by louis albroch translated by elizabeth warmly Latimer. chapter 3 a midnight supper at midnight pierre montier was coming out of the theater of the varietes only partially satisfied with the operetta he had heard Though he had been at any rate well pleased to find his precious money would procure him the satisfaction of an evening's ennui such as appeared to be the fashion among rich people he had really been unable to make anything out of the songs he heard in his opinion music was quite superfluous when people were discussing their domestic affairs but he had stretched out his legs and borne it as well as he could in an armchair, and the women who sang had shown him so much of their throats and bosoms whence their warblings came forth and they had such fashion of showing their arms and legs that pierre had patiently endured the music considering it pretty tolerable and was listened to with eyes as well as ears he had made a good dinner before going to the theatre he had been out to take refreshments between every act and now tired of sitting still and with his food well digested he was tramping along the asphalt of the boulevard inhaling the fresh night air at the same time as the fumes of gas which corrected it as brandy had sometimes said to correct pure water The street lamps and the lights in the cafes seemed all to flare in his honor to illuminate his triumphal march through Paris. Ah, Paris, as many a Parisian has imagined, seemed that evening built for him alone. He took possession of it in the name of the peasantry, his own order, an order that is laughed at when its members have not twenty-five thousand francs in their breeches pockets. He could pay for anything he pleased. Besides, in his pocket he had what would excite the envy of all those fellows chewing cigars, who pushed up against him as they passed him, or turned out of his way as if he were a walking garbage heap but he walked straight on with that jaunty gait which Parisians call Cédandiant, from which, no doubt, proceeds the English Dandy. Pierre was fast acquiring this gate. By the use of it, a consciousness of power makes itself manifest to passing eyes. A chronicler of the imperial court relates that as soon as Bonaparte became first consul and was installed at the Tuileries, he began to Cédandier in his walk in order to look like a king. Pierre, most assuredly, had never read that anecdote. It was the instinct of a conqueror which led him to imitate the Emperor Napoleon his gait as he walked along the boulevard did not in the least resemble his gait when he left the office of maitre beaux still less his walk when he was going there he had the same thick shoes on his feet but his uncle's banknotes had put feathers on his heels like mercury's a not inapt mythological analogy in the financial world as he was passing one of these great fashionable restaurants wherein everything is always in preparation for a midnight meal he slackened his pace his sense of smell which had become suddenly civilized made him conscious of delicate savours from the kitchen unless, indeed, he smelled to his eyes as he had heard the music, and the sight of the persons going in put him in mind that he had an appetite. Three grigettes, in particular, crossed the sidewalk laughing, and rushed noisily into the door of the brilliant establishment. He followed them, going behind them up a staircase softly carpeted, and reached a great hot room whose atmosphere for a moment almost suffocated him. But, bah, he thought, I'll get accustomed to it, as I did to the atmosphere of the theatre. If the air became too oppressive, he knew he could correct it by smoking a pipe. "'Does Monsieur want supper?' asked a waiter, "'who by the cut of his whiskers and his oily manner "'reminded him at once of the notary "'who had recently given him twenty-five thousand francs "'and a piece of good advice into the bargain. "'The sharp air of this waiter was magisterial and irritating, "'like that of Maitre de Pierre looked him all over, like a horse-jockey, "'who has no idea of being taken in by the prancing "'and the caperings of a broken-down horse. "'Well,' he replied, "'and don't they give supper at this house?' "'At the same time he placed himself "'before a little table that was unoccupied.' the waiter who resembled the notary was a wit in a kind of solemn way that kind of which the humorous Arnal was the most perfect specimen ah certainly monsieur we serve supper here but we never give supper he said this without the smallest laugh but all the guests at the other two tables between which pierre was standing began laughing the peasant comprehended in a moment he saw the mockery but he wore a breastplate which prevented its shafts from piercing his skin do you want part payment in advance he replied with a loud laugh that sounded more silly than he expected "'Make yourself easy, waiter. "'I've got money to pay for what I eat, "'and if I pleased I could pay for all "'that is eaten by these gentlemen and ladies. "'Go and get me something, and move quicker than that. "'You shall have five francs beaubois, "'if I am satisfied with you.' "'The promise of five francs was hyperbole, "'or an error of pronunciation. "'It, however, had its effect. "'The laughter of the company came to an end. "'That is, there was no more laughter, "'except at the table where four elegant young men "'had seated themselves, "'men of the highest fashion in the clubs.' men of different ages, but the same in dress and bearing. As to the other table, to which as yet no supper had been brought, and before which the three young women were still standing, it became suddenly silent. The women diminished the expression of their amusement until it dwindled to a pleasant smile. They looked at each other, and, the place seeming desirable, they sat down. The waiter made a low bow before the peasant who had promised to pay lavishly, just as the notary had bowed low to the man who had inherited a fortune, and presented him the kata of the day's dishes pierre as he looked it over solemnly without however reading it saw out of the corners of his eyes his neighbors little preparations for their repast what does monsieur wish to order asked the waiter after waiting two minutes respectfully bring me whatever you like provided it is good the waiter began a rapid enumeration in which the word truffles played its part like the oro pro nobis in a lightning pierre grew impatient he was red as a cock but in good humor and he cried out jocosely, i didn't come here to eat cabbage soup you understand "'Give me whatever those gentlemen are eating, "'and whatever those ladies are going to have.' "'This time the men's table laughed less, "'and a little snickering laugh rose among the ladies. "'We are as much embarrassed as you are, monsieur,' "'said one of the three, with a voice whose tones, "'though decidedly vulgar, pleased Pierre Montier. "'That's good,' said a male voice. "'Well, garçon,' said Pierre recklessly, "'you choose for these ladies and myself. "'Only choose well. "'If the things are bad, I shan't pay for them. "'What wine does monsieur prefer?' "'What wine are those gentlemen drinking?' champagne frappé that's all right i come from champagne only i think a deal of our wine i don't want a frappé i like it best as it is pierre quite pleased with his own rapate, sat down upon the velvet bench not finding himself comfortable in the chair provided for him his back was to a great looking-glass so he missed the sight of his own red face in its contrast with the pale faces of the men at their table and the powdered and painted faces of the woman who had just sat down pierre supped like a glutton partly because he always had a big appetite and partly because of his inordinate vanity. He drank, too, in proportion to what he ate, without, however, being drunk exactly. He was one of those stout casks which can keep all they will hold, and which must be filled to the brim and run over before they show any signs of having taken too much. At every bumper he held his glass towards the women at their table, rather in mockery than for the sake of gallantry. He knew too well what he was about, he thought, to let himself be made tipsy by them. At dessert, one of them rose to go and light her cigarette by the cigar of one of the four gentlemen of fashion. The man she applied to, who had been in a brown study for some moments, roused by her application, said, showing her his cigar which had gone out, My dear, you have made a mistake. I have no fire left. Well then, she said, insinuating, light it again and give me some. The man with the cigar gave a sigh that was too genuine for such a scene, and pointing to Pierre Montier said, Ask that gentleman. I dare say he carries his flint and steel with him. And at any rate, to all appearances he has kindling, this vulgar pleasantry which was uttered in French slang made both tables laugh. Pierre did not understand the joke, but the tone in which it was said did not please him. "'As for me,' continued the melancholy gentleman, "'I haven't so much as a match left. I used them all up this evening, hoping they would bring me good luck. I am totally cleaned out.' Pierre did not know what cleaned out meant, but he too laughed. "'Ha! Ha! Cleaned out! He's cleaned out!' he repeated, emphasizing his words by a movement of his head and shoulders. The girl lighted her cigarette by another man's cigar, came back and seated herself before Pierre Montier. ''Well, it seems that you are not cleaned out at any rate,'' she said interrogatively. Pierre laughed louder still, not that he understood the term, but he began to guess his meaning. ''I'm all right,'' he said. ''And you'd like to come in for a share, would you?'' The woman, who had brought this reply upon herself, but who nevertheless was angry at it, said sharply, ''My good man, you are tipsy.'' ''That's not so, for I can see clear enough still. Is it your wife or your housekeeper who takes care of you when you get home rather mellow?'' "'I've got no wife, and I've got no housekeeper. "'I take care of myself.' "'Ah, oh, and that's it, is it?' "'And what's more, my good girl, it's no business of yours.' "'Yes, it is, for I think we come from the same neighborhood.' "'I'm quite sure we don't.' "'To what butcher have you sold your breeves "'that you are so well satisfied? "'Are you going to furnish the boeuf this year?' "'I have nothing to do with breves or cows,' responded Pierre. "'You have not hit the mark.' "'Then you have come into a fortune. "'Now you are right. "'A big one? Ha ha how much that my little dear will be entered in the law books in the proper place well if you go on living every day as you have done to-day you will soon be drained dry like monsieur Bah, bah. so monsieur is drained dry is he pierre turned round to the gentleman in question who frowned bit his lips and then said with a trembling in his voice which he suppressed with difficulty my affairs are no business of yours my good man just as you please i was only going to offer to pay what he's lost cried another gentleman at the same table, holding out his hand. "'Don't hesitate. I'll take it. You can pay me.' "'No, I only meant a drink all round.' "'Oh, that won't be so dear. That won't cost you fifteen thousand francs.' Fifteen thousand francs!' As Pierre said this, he placed his hand quickly on his left side, where his heart and his pocketbook both were, and gave a great sigh. The sigh of a moneyed man well satisfied with himself, and not to be done out of his money. He passed his finger over his mouth to wipe the corners, "'as if the foam on the top of his good fortune might betray him. "'Do you really owe all that?' he asked, "'winking at the melancholy gentleman. "'This personage thus brought forth against his will "'was a man about thirty years of age, "'with features regular, rather than handsome, "'with the ordinary elegance of a man in his position. "'One of those men who are correctly up to the standard in appearance, deportment, and even apparent frankness, "'who are called distinguished, "'because nothing personally distinguishes them "'from the general crowd of men of dissipation and fashion. "'He was pale. He had eaten no supper.' his feverish eyes betrayed his great anxiety now his glance became suddenly angry and turning to the friend who had thus brought him forward he said henri i beg of you say no more of my affairs in this place the man called henri drew himself up curled the ends of his moustache and said our affairs you should say my dear gaston for i am interested in the matter as you can well understand are you afraid i shall not pay you no not precisely well then give up this joking i would like you to understand Gaston." "'that it was you yourself who began it. "'You need not have said you were cleaned out. "'That's enough about it. Say no more. "'Ha! Gaston, are you afraid anyone will tell your wife?' "'Gaston made a sudden movement "'that showed anger and impatience "'and knocked over a pretty champagne glass. "'Henri,' he said, "'I forbid you to go on.' "'Forbid me? Gaston, "'I forbid you to forbid me to do anything. "'You are presuming on your good luck, "'and you on your bad luck. "'You look so self-satisfied, and you so miserable.' "'Gaston, who had less patience than the other,' or else less sharpness of repartee made a movement as if to pick up a dessert knife on the table henri burst into a loud laugh which made his friend ashamed of himself wouldn't you like to stick that into me as if i were a pear or an apple come mon cher shake hands across the table across a basket of fruit the two gentlemen touched hands pierre Montaire could not quite make out what was passing beside him to clear his intelligence he drank more wine the sense he had of his own importance made him desirous to play the part of peacemaker he rose though with some difficulty, his napkin pendant like a flag of truce from the top button of his waistcoat, and coming up to the table where the dispute had been going on, with a glass of champagne in his hand, Come, come, he said, speaking very thickly, don't get angry with each other, my good fellows. What business have you to interfere? replied Gaston, who had also risen, and who gave him a sudden push backwards, sharp and nervous full in the middle of his chest. This unexpected blow, which made Pierre fall back upon his seat, upset him entirely, and developed his latent tipsiness. "'They all thought he was going to make some rough reply, "'but he suddenly became maudlin. "'What business have I to interfere? "'Business have I to interfere?' he murmured. "'I find everybody ungrateful to me this day.' "'The recollection of what had passed between him and his cousin "'some hours before now came back upon him. "'When I make anyone an offer,' he went on, "'he refuses it. "'Well, more's the pity. "'I shall give nothing. "'And here's another fellow afraid of being scolded by his wife "'because he'll go home with an empty pocket. "'Oh, woman!' Women. The gambler sat silent. Gaston, who had grown very pale, sat looking at his plate and twirling his moustache. The women had done their suppers. They were frightened by the suddenness of Pierre's drunkenness. They looked at each other, and came to an understanding at once. Hoping to profit by a last gleam of sense before he sank into deep drunkenness, they deputed by a sign the boldest among them to make him a suggestion. "'Is it quite true that you will pay for us?' she asked Pierre Monte. The word paid made him start but his good nature, sustained by his full stomach, came uppermost. "'Yes, I'll pay,' he answered. "'Yes. I've got plenty to pay with. Have you any doubt about it?' "'Constant, bring the bill,' said the girl. Constant was a waiter of experience. He had had the woman's bill made out, and also that of Pierre Monte. He brought them both on the same waiter. Pierre, on receiving the two slips, screwed up his eyes, a movement that was now necessary to let him see. He held out the two papers at arm's length. His sight, as it grew worse, grew longer. He gave a slight hiccup, which seemed to interfere with a grimace. You dog! Butter must cost dear in these parts, he growled. But that was all. Pierre had a dread of getting angry. He felt that he was being looked at. He put his hand with great dignity into his waistcoat pocket and drew out a purse full of gold. But gold was always best to keep. Pierre thought more of it than he did of paper. He therefore pulled out his pocketbook, opened it, and spread out his roll of banknotes in order to choose the dirtiest of them. This display produced a murmur of astonishment, and also of admiration. Bon cried one of the gamblers. Pierre picked up his roll of notes, accepting the one to pay with, and for which he expected change, and stuffed it back into his pocket. A silence as profound as a silence for devotion followed a blasphemy which escaped from one of those present. A man so well provided could not but inspire respect to say nothing of compassion pierre was in that obscure first stage of drunkenness when it is an effort to pull oneself together before making up one's mind how to act he nodded his head he had but one idea present in his mind he knew that he was expecting some change and that he must not move until he got it while he was waiting the gentlemen from the club had settled their account and were making ready to go gaston who was out of temper and could not pay his share because he really was cleaned out to his last cent walked first towards the door Henri, the lucky winner, who paid for the whole party, called him back. Hey, Monterey, you are forgetting your cane. So saying, he held out to him a very pretty little walking stick. Gaston de Monterey turned back, took his cane, which he bent, and made it whistle in the air. Then he said sarcastically to Henri, I'm much obliged to you for not keeping it in pledge. Oh, I know you think a great deal of it. Are you still angry with me, Gaston? No, but when I win i am ready to give you your revenge whenever you like i shall not wait for that to pay you what i owe oh don't put yourself out do you mean you think me hard put to it no i don't think anything except that you ought not to have come here to suffer that i have wounded your feelings and that you are in a bad humor it is late nearly two o'clock madame de monterey is going to be very angry with us i have my coupé shall i drive you home no i had better walk it will do me good they went downstairs Pierre remained alone in the great room. He was quite at his ease. He would have liked to have stayed there and slept all night, but the waiter, when he gave him his change, told him that everybody else was gone, that they were going to put out the lights, and that he had better go home and go to bed. Go to bed? Where can I go to bed? Oh, at my hotel. And where is my hotel? Ah, that I can't tell you. Monsieur promised me a pour Ah, you want to drink, my lad. You had better not. Tiens. It shall never be said that Pierre Montaigne was not generous the day he inherited a fortune. There, there's something to drink with, you drunkard. And Pierre, who could hardly keep his feet, put a ten-franc gold piece into the waiter's hand. This generosity made Constant anxious to be of service. He conducted him downstairs to the outer door quite fillily, and before leaving him to himself in the darkness of the boulevard at that time of night, he completed his mission by a prudent offer. Will you have a carriage? What nonsense, what for? To take you back to your hotel. "'Well, and these legs of mine, don't you suppose they will do me that much service?' "'It would be more prudent. You have so much money about you.' "'Do you suppose there are any robbers about, except yourself?' Constant smiled. This speech weakened his purpose. He pressed the matter, however. Pierre Montier remembered what Gaston de Monterey had said. He said it over again, drawing himself up as he did so. "'No, I had rather walk. It will do me good.' "'Just as you please,' replied the waiter.' who had already gone further than he was accustomed to, being a social philosopher. When Pierre found himself upon the asphalt pavement in the fresh air of the night, he shivered, and for a moment was Kitty. He stood a few seconds in the same spot, twisting his body round without moving his feet, trying vaguely to make out where he was, struggling unconsciously, with all the force of his will against his drunkenness, and then, when he thought he could walk straight, he went ahead without knowing where he was going. The maudlin feelings that had come over him towards the close of supper returned, now that he had found himself alone in the fresh air could the melancholy of our Parisian night have made itself perceptible to so dense a soul as his may we apply to pierre montier a saying that was one day let fall by montaigne the cabaret opens the heart at any rate it is certain that on coming out of this cabaret of fashion the heart of pierre montier was open to any wind that chanced to blow without knowing why he had tears in his eyes he wiped them away at first then he began to wonder why they came The logic of a drunkard is pretty sharp and often caustic. Since I want to cry, he said to himself, it must be because I am not pleased with myself. He tried to follow up this reflection. True, true, he went on, with the most utmost frankness. I have been a brute. I have spent too much. I have eaten too much. I have drunk too much. I have said too many silly things. What an idea I must have given to myself to those gentlemen and ladies... This last scruple did not embarrass him long. Bah, I don't care for any of them. They all wanted a bit of my cake. I had better have given it to Jean. Poor Jean. I ought to have paid for his supper. He wanted to take me home with him, and it was I who ought to have brought him here. Had he had this vision of an unasked guest while eating his supper, and had he put it from him? He remembered, all of a sudden, the heartbroken look of his poor cousin when they parted from him. If he had drunk so much, and had tried so hard to amuse himself, he thought it was that he might forget that last look of his cousin's. The sad eyes of Jean Montier had seemed to look at him all through the evening. He had seen them glancing at him through a little hole in the curtain of the theatre. The varietes, He had seen them again in the face of that cleaned-out card player. He was afraid of seeing them under the brims of the hats that passed him by, or the dark forms that crossed and recrossed him, picking up cigar-stumps on the pavements. He thought of a scene of sorrow passing up Boulogne while he was at supper, How his cousin had gone home and told his wife that he had no legacy, that he ought to have had one, but that Pierre had got it all, and the little girl, could she have understood? Maybe she, too, had begun to cry. I dare say they are all crying now, said Pierre, wiping away a tear. And I am the cause of it. I'm a fool and a miserable beggar. It always brings bad luck when a man is selfish. And then why shouldn't I set up a family, now that I have the means to support one? A ready made family. Poor Jean. It seems as if his wife were really fond of him. She isn't one of those women who eat everything up. The money I spent on those greedy girls tonight would have kept Jean his wife and his little girl for a week. I was wrong a while ago to refuse to give him anything. It wouldn't have ruined me. The notary will think badly of me. If he can do me an ill turn in drawing up the deeds he will do it to a certainty. I'll go and see him tomorrow. That's it. I will make just a little present to the girl. He walked on some time without stopping, hoping that if he did not pause, he would escape making more uncomfortable reflections. He deceived himself. His bodily activity made his mental activity greater. He wanted to smoke. His poor pipe. He seemed to have despised it since he became rich. That was bad. In searching into the deep pocket, where he had embedded his heritage, he felt a paper which he pulled out. He was afraid it might be a banknote. That would have been awful had he lighted his pipe with a banknote. But looking at it out of the gas, he recognized the envelope his cousin had given him at the notary's. Good luck makes people superstitious, more even than misfortune, above all when the drunkenness of possession is augmented by physical drunkenness. Pierre saw in the fact of the possession of this envelope a warning from heaven, a lesson. He was not a man to receive a lesson from heaven with indifference, any more than a lesson from a notary. And even as he wanted to go back and set himself right with Maitre Boissolo, he wanted forthwith to make things straight with providence. He drew heroically out of his pocketbook two banknotes, each for one thousand francs, made sure that that was their exact value and no more, and that he had only taken two. Then he slipped them into the envelope, saying to himself, Won't he be glad tomorrow morning when he gets this letter? Ought he to prepay it? Uh, Of course he ought. He saw the red light of a tobacconist's establishment, which was not yet shut for the night. He went in and asked for a postage stamp, and his providence seemed to him to be doing many things to promote this good deed that night. It seemed to him providential that there was a letter box just before the tobacconist's door. He felt really comforted when he heard the heavy envelope drop down in the box. Now he could go to bed; he would have pleasant dreams. But suppose his letter, in spite of being prepaid, should never reach its address? Such things sometimes happen. There are in the service of the post office beggars who do not every day get such dinners as the one he had that day eaten, and who would be very glad if they could dine that way. Suppose one of them should steal his two thousand francs? I should have done better, he thought, to have sent it to-morrow by a messenger. Anyhow, if the letter arrived on time, he was sorrowed now that he should miss seeing Jean's face when he received it. It would have been a triumph and a pleasure to witness the joy of the man his wife and their little one. To witness, yes, but to go and tell him that it was coming would be better still. What a delight it would be! Pierre, since he had resolved on doing a good action, wanted to have its rewards before they were due. His tender-heartedness had made a great change in him his tears were a sort of dew on his broad smile the effervescence left in his mind by the supper had turned to gaiety to the desire of doing a benevolent thing was added the desire of playing a good joke and what better fun could there be than arriving very early in the morning at boulogne and knocking tap 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 at the door if there was no bell in singing out in shouting in calling up jean and his wife and the little girl provided they should be asleep among the furniture that the sheriff's officer was to seize and sell that day what an awakening what a surprise The neighbors, of course, would run in and witness the spectacle. And all through Boulogne it would be known in no time that Pierre Montier was neither a curmudgeon nor an unkind kinsman, that of his own free will he had given a share of his heritage to his cousin without being forced to do so. Boulogne is so near Paris that, probably, Paris would hear of it too. That notary who had taken it upon himself to give him good advice, how vexed he would be to find out that of himself, and not by reason of anything that he had said, Pierre had gone and hunted up Jean. He did not feel tired. He would go on foot. Anyhow, if he got tired, he could afford to hire a carriage. He saw some still on the stand, and met some along the boulevards. It is true that at two in the morning they would probably cost dear, and it would be better to save the fare. Pierre did not exactly remember the name of the street or the number of the house, but what matter, he could find it. It seemed to him that, after carrying an address several hours in one's pocket, one must in some way be able to remember it. So his mind was made up. He did not intend to change it it might be three miles or it might be six but who cared for parisian miles he had walked plenty of miles in his day to gain a few five-franc pieces on nights after markets and after lingering cabarets where the wine was abominable he took his bearings but for more certainty he went up to a man whom he had noticed near him several times that evening and who anyhow was going in the same direction and asked him the shortest way to get to the village of boulogne through the bois after you pass the champs elysees replied the stranger pierre started a little at the sound of his voice He fancied he remembered having heard it before. It was, however, but a passing fancy. He bowed, for, having become kindly, he was also disposed to be polite. The stranger, whose hands were in the side pockets of his overcoat, with the collar well up around his face, and a cane sticking straight out of one of the pockets, judged it needless to respond to the bow, to take his hands out for so small a thing. He crossed the street, and walked along the other sidewalk the same way Pierre was going, till he reached the top of the Place de la Concorde. Then he took a carriage, but seemed to be taking him up the Champs-Élysées, probably he lived in that direction pierre had lighted his pipe all that remained now of his copious supper and his abundant libations was a sort of vaporous feeling about his temples a beating in his head which by degrees grew less and less and an instinct of walking on at a quick pace towards his destination he went on and on without fatigue happy to live happy to be rich happy because he was on his way to make others happy the only thing he regretted was having wasted the sou on that postage stamp in order to carry his 2000 francs since he would get there before his letter it would have been so much better to save postage end of chapter 3 recording by todd